All right, I want to invite you to take your Bible and turn with me this morning to 1 Peter chapter 1, the book of 1 Peter chapter 1. In his book, The Mark of a Christian, Francis Schaeffer makes this provocative observation about the importance of Christian love. He said that Jesus gave the world permission to judge the genuineness of our faith on the basis of our love for one another. Listen to John 13, verse 35. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Schaefer even argued that the world can judge not only the genuineness of our faith, but the very truthfulness of the gospel on the basis of Christian love and unity. In John 17, Jesus prays that they, believers, may be one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. So if the world looks at the church and sees bitterness and hypocrisy and arrogance and conflict instead of love and humility and gentleness and unity, then the world has every right to wonder if we really are Christians. And we should not be surprised if the world then rejects Christ and despises his church. So the stakes are high. Our love for one another within the church, or lack thereof, will not only have an impact on us, but also on our witness to the world. And when you look at all the contempt and scorn in the world, it turns out that one of the most countercultural things that followers of Christ can do is simply to love one another sincerely and purely. In fact, this kind of love is one of the very purposes for which God has saved his children and called them into his family. We're going to see that together this morning in 1 Peter chapter 1. So let's read together. We're going to begin in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Let's pause there and let's pray together. Lord, we are thankful for your word, and I pray that you would give us grace this morning by your spirit to not just be hearers of the word, but to be doers of the word. God, that we would hear in, in this passage a reminder of your mercy toward us, your character, your goodness, and all that you have done on our behalf. And also, Lord, that we would hear a clear call to be what you have called us to be if we are indeed your children. So, God, enable us by your Spirit to do what you have commanded us to do in your word. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. There is a kind of consistent logic to all of the commands that God gives us in the Bible. God never tells his people to do something just for the sake of doing it 
Whatever He commands us to do is always grounded on His character and on what He has done. We've already heard Peter use this kind of logic earlier in this letter. Look back with me, for example, at verse 15. As He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. So the truth of God's holiness and of His calling us to salvation, calling us into His family, that truth then leads to the command, you also be holy in all your conduct. The command is grounded on who God is, He's holy, and on what He has done. He has called you. So He is holy, He has called you, therefore be holy in all your conduct. That's the logic to these commands. We're going to see Peter use that same kind of reasoning in this passage today, except this time he has in mind not just our holiness in relation to God, but also our holiness in relation to others. So here's how I want to summarize the big idea of this passage. God gives us new life through his word so that we will love one another. God gives us new life through his word so that we will love one another. So there are, there are three ingredients to that sentence. First, to say that God gives us new life is a way of describing salvation, the new birth. God has caused us to be born again, as Peter said earlier in this letter. The instrument by which God saves us is His Word. God gives us new life through His Word. And the purpose for which God saves us is love. God gives us new life through His Word so that we will love one another. Of course, this is not the only purpose for which God saves us, but loving one another is one purpose for which God gives new life to His people. And it's the purpose that Peter focuses on in this passage. Now, before we get to that purpose, let's look first at the instrument of salvation, that God gives us new life through His Word. Peter told us back in chapter 1, verse 3, that according to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again. Now in verse 23, he adds that God's children have been born again through the living and abiding Word of God. So when you put chapter 1, verse 3 together with chapter 1, verse 23, you have this, that God grants new life according to His great mercy, and He grants new life through His living and abiding Word. That's the instrument by which He causes us to be born again. Now, of course, not everyone who hears God's Word will necessarily be born again. Jesus says in John chapter 3, verse 8, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. We cannot predict when God will call someone to be born again. It's not something we can manufacture. It's not like if we say these exact words in this order with this emphasis, then everybody who hears it will automatically, boom, just be born again. But while it's true that not everyone who hears God's word will be born again, it's also true that no one will be born again apart from God's word. It is the instrument by which He grants new life. Now with that in mind, look at verse 24 
After telling us that, Peter quotes from Isaiah. This is in verse 24. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Peter does not grab that quote from Isaiah at random. He doesn't just say, well, I was reading in Isaiah in my quiet time and I I heard this cool verse. He has a, a reason for why he quotes this verse in particular. Because God spoke these words to the people of Israel during a time of great trouble and trial, great difficulty when they were in exile. And what Peter does is he takes those words that Isaiah spoke and he now applies them to New Testament Christians who are scattered throughout the world during their time of exile. And the point, it seems, is to remind us that everything we're enduring is temporary. Of course, we never know how temporary. Temporary does not necessarily mean brief. For the people of Israel, their exile lasted 70 years. For some of them, that was the rest of their life. That's what temporary can mean sometimes. But 70 or even 100 years is temporary in comparison to eternity. So here's one way you could think about it of why Peter is is quoting that particular passage from Isaiah. When Isaiah spoke those words to the people of Israel hundreds of years before Christ was born, the Babylonians were in power. They were the big national power on the scene. By the time Peter applies Isaiah's words to his readers, the Babylonians are long gone. They've been replaced by the Persians and then the Greeks and then the Romans. As we read Peter's letter this morning in 2020, the Romans are long gone. But there is one thing that abides through all these years, one thing that stands when everything else has fallen and faded. The grass withers and flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. No matter who is in power, what is always true is that God calls us His children to be born again through His Word, and that Word remains and abides forever. And after quoting from Isaiah, Peter then says, this is at the end of verse 25, and this Word, the Word of the Lord, is the good news that was preached to you. The the message that the Christians in Asia Minor had heard and believed in Peter's day was just as much the word of the Lord as that which was proclaimed to the people of Israel many hundreds of years before Christ through the prophet Isaiah. And that same gospel, that same good news has been preached to us in the 21st century. This word by which God grants new life, it is imperishable. It never spoils or expires. It never goes out of date. It never loses its power. The gospel is and always will be the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So if you have been born again, this is the instrument by which God has granted new life to you through the living and abiding Word of God. If you're born again, it's because someone loved you enough to tell you. Someone loved you enough to share something from the Word of God with you. It might have been a pastor. It might have been a parent or grandparent. It might have been a Sunday school teacher. Whoever it was, someone loved you enough to share the Word of God with you. And God used that as the instrument to do a miracle in you. 
to grant new life to you, to cause you to be born again, to take you from death to life. So the, the instrument of salvation is the Word of God. God gives us new life through His Word. And now I want us to turn and, and look at the purpose for which God has given us new life because it's equally true that if you have been born again, God has given you new life for a purpose. It's not just for your sake, but it's for His sake and for the sake of His purpose here on earth. So we summarize the big idea in this way. God gives us new life through His Word so that we will love one another. So that we will love one another. Now I said earlier that love, loving one another, is not the only purpose for which God has saved His children, but this is one important and vital purpose for which God has caused His children to be born again. Back up with me to, to verse 22. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding Word of God. God gives us new life through His Word. But this new life manifests itself in our obedience to the truth, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. So the gospel is not only something that we must hear and agree with as if it were only a mental exercise. The gospel is something we must obey. Jesus said not just that you must believe me, but that you must follow me. So we must put our trust in him and follow him, surrender to him as Lord. But our obedience to the truth, our trusting in Him and following Him is not something we achieve on our own as if we figured it out while everyone else couldn't. It is something that God works in us according to His great mercy. When Peter talks about purifying your souls by your obedience to the truth and being born again, these are different ways of describing the same thing. When a, when a child is born again, they suddenly begin to exhibit signs of life. And when a person is born again, they begin to exhibit signs of eternal life. They begin to trust in Christ and follow Him and obey Him. And one of the results of this new life is love. It results in love for one another. Having purified your souls by obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. Now we need to be really clear that we're not saved by loving one another. But we are saved so that we will love one another. Notice, love for fellow Christians is not the cause or the instrument of our salvation, but it is the goal and the purpose of our salvation. You have been set apart. Your souls have been purified by obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. And the command then to love one another earnestly from a pure heart, that command is grounded on the truth that you have been born again. Notice, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again. So because you have been born again, God now calls you 
to love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Here's another way we could put it. If God has given you a new heart in Christ, which that is what He has done in you if you've been born again, if you've put your trust in Christ, then God has removed your heart of stone and He's given you a heart of flesh. And if that's true of you, then the command is to love one another earnestly from that pure heart that God has given to you. Now as we make our way through this letter, Peter's going to lay out a lot of examples of of what that means practically to, to love one another earnestly from a pure heart. But here in our passage this morning, he begins by telling us that it's going to mean putting certain things away. It's going to mean doing certain things, but it's also going to mean not doing certain things, putting certain things away. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. Now, what do all those things have in common with one another? They largely have to do with the way we talk, the way we speak. The New Testament has a lot to say about how we speak to and speak about one another. Of course, loving one another is about more than words. 1 John 3.18 says, Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. And James chapter 2, verses 15 and 16, If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? Our love for one another cannot stop at words. We can't just wish one another well while we refuse to do things that would actually help someone. Our love for one another has to be a giving, acting kind of love. But while our love cannot stop at words, our words are incredibly important. The way we speak to one another and the way we speak about one another is significant and telling We may be tempted, on the one hand, to say kind things while not backing it up with loving actions. Other times, the opposite is true. We're tempted to do kind things while secretly thinking or speaking ill of someone. We're polite on the outside, but we're not genuinely loving on the inside. The command to love one another earnestly from a pure heart means that we must pursue both loving actions and loving thoughts and words and feelings for fellow believers. Loving one another earnestly from a pure heart means in part that we put away words and attitudes toward one another that would harm and sow division among the church. In fact, even in that command, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, it speaks to both our heart and to our actions. So let me put that question to you. Which one of those temptations are you most inclined to fall into? Do you say kind things while not backing it up with loving actions? Or do you do kind things while not backing them up with loving words and feelings? Maybe at different times you fall into different temptations. God commands us to put such things away, to put away malice, to put away hypocrisy, to put away deceit and envy and all slander. 
I've had this passage circled in my mind for a few weeks because it seemed an especially timely word for not only our church, but for the church at large. We're living through a time of great peril. And there are two kinds of danger, uh, one physical and the other spiritual. Um, When I talk about the spiritual danger, I, I don't want in any way to downplay the real physical danger that this virus presents to us. We need to take that danger seriously. It's why I am preaching to you from my home today and not physically uh, at church with you. We need to take that seriously, not only for the physical safety of our congregation, but even more importantly, we need to take the physical danger seriously for the reputation of Jesus. Because what I don't want to happen is for our church to do anything that would cause the world to say, you know, those Christians don't really care about their neighbor. They claim to be pro-life, but they sure seem to be reckless with the life that God has given to them and with the life and with the life of their neighbors. So I pray that we will honor Jesus in the way that we act. The problem, of course, is that not everyone agrees on the right thing to do and the right way to honor Jesus. And that's where the spiritual danger comes in. The spiritual danger for us is that we would allow this crisis to become an opportunity for things like malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander to creep in. The challenge before us is to maintain a sincere brotherly love for one another to continue loving one another earnestly from a pure heart when everyone seems to have a different opinion about the right thing to do and the right time to do it. And the potential for these disagreements is not going away anytime soon. If anything, it's only going to get more complicated and less clear. So here is my simple plea to all of us. Let's not allow any differences of opinion to become opportunities for Satan to sow division among the church of Jesus Christ. Let's make up our minds day after day that we're going to put away any ill will. We're going to put away any deceit or hypocrisy, any envy or slander. Let's make up our mind day after day that we're not going to to talk about people with whom we disagree the same way that the world does that we're not going to spread deceitful, untruthful statements as carelessly as the world does because we care about the truth. And because when we tell the truth to the world, we want them to actually believe what we say. We want to have some credibility in what we say. Let's make up our mind day after day that we're not going to disparage those who feel differently than we do. We're not going to disparage those who take different approaches to going about their life than we do because God gave each one of us a conscience. And each person has their own set of circumstances. Some of them we can see, some of them we can't. Instead, we're going to choose day after day to love one another earnestly from a pure heart. We're going to think not only of our own interests, but of the interests of others. We're going to model kindness and gentleness and truthfulness. And when we disagree with one another... We're going to model how to disagree while still loving one another and while still working toward the same goal and purpose because we are part of the same 
family. We have the same Father. We serve the same Savior. We're filled with the same Spirit. We've been born again through the same living and abiding Word of God. And those things are far more important, far more significant, and far more lasting than any temporary strategy or opinion about what we're doing in the world today. We're not going to have a time of public invitation uh, this morning, but God's Word still demands a response. I just want to encourage you, wherever you are this morning, whether you're in the sanctuary or the fellowship hall or whether you're listening from home, if God is leading you to make some kind of decision for Christ, if He's leading you in some certain direction, I really want to encourage you to reach out and talk to me or talk to Colby today. We would love to help you and pray with you and rejoice with you in what God's doing in your heart and in your life. Let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have given us a true and certain word that we don't have to wonder about who you are or what you've commanded us to do, but that you've spoken clearly and revealed yourself to us. I pray for every person today who's hearing my voice. I pray that more importantly, they would hear from you, Lord, through your word. Spirit of God, that you would move in each one of our hearts to draw us closer to you and closer to one another. Um, Lord, that you would help us to, to love one another, not to look only to our own interests, but to the interests of others. And Lord, that day after day we would choose to put away anything that would would harm others with our words, to put away anything that would poison our own soul with bitterness, to put away anything that would cause division within the church, and that we would choose to put on love, that we would choose to put on humility, that we would choose to put on kindness and gentleness and all the fruit of the Spirit. Lord, that we would walk in the Spirit, that we would keep in step with the Spirit, that we would bear the fruit of the Spirit, Lord, that our lives would give evidence that we love you, that we have surrendered and submitted to you and to your word. And because of that, we want to live not for ourselves, but for you. And that means that we're going to live in such a way that we love others, that we love them sincerely from a pure heart. Lord, I pray that you would enable us to do that by your spirit. And God, that the result of that would be that the world would see our love for one another and the world would see our love for our neighbor and the world would see our love for you. And they would say, we want whatever that is that they would find it compelling. And God, that we would bear witness, not only with our words, but with our very attitudes and with our actions, that we would bear witness to the gospel. Help us to do that today. Help us to respond rightly to you today. And Lord, I pray that your spirit would move and draw each one of us to trust and to obey you. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.